Emma and Tom Talk Teaching, a podcast about all things education, presented by Emma Thayer and Tom Breeze. Episode 9, Christmas Special 2022. <laughs> I dug him out again. You've outdone yourself this year. What was that little bing bong thing at the end? That's always been in there. <laughs> Has it really? Yeah, yeah, those jingly oh bells. In fact, I distinctly remember last year's Christmas episode starting with you with the words, are ah, those jingly bells? <laughs> <laughs> Technical term. Yeah. yeah, well, I was waiting. I was ready, poised and waiting for the, the jingly bells, but I couldn't. I, I had definitely forgotten, forgotten the... Just da, 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 da. how festive those jingly bells are. Yeah, beautiful. Oh, thank Stunning. you. I, I apologise to Cameron every year for doing that to his theme music. <laughs> I, I, I have only myself to blame for that abomination. <laughs> you took that cheesy, cheesy decision. I did. I did. I didn't. I didn't expect it of you, but there we are. Nope. You, you learn new things about people you thought you knew every day. <laughs> so we should probably um, fess up. Yes. We. Um, we're online again. We're recording remotely. We're Why? recording remotely. We always deck our studio with jingly lights, buy ourselves a festive coffee. Um, and now you've got COVID and I'm here all by myself and it's dark and cold outside. And literally there appears to be nobody left in the building because, you know, in a, in a bit of a contrast to the festive warm glow that this will actually go out into mid midway between Christmas and New Year, we are traditionally recording this right at the end of term when we're tired and in your your case ill. Um, And yeah, everybody's gone home. The corridor lights are off outside, I can see behind me. (laughs) I am the only one left in the building all by myself. (laughs) Oh gosh, it's not a very festive feel that we've... uh, It's not. I thought about decorating the the remote sort of contributor software, the the -the down-the-line software with some nice fairy lights but i just thought that would be too tragic it yeah it really is pitiful really Mm. but i mean at least at least you know we've gone to extreme lengths to make sure that you get your christmas present from us um you're in that weird no man's land period where you don't know what day it is um and you're probably still eating leftover chocolate if there is any yes uh, we're in that weird no man's land period where we're not quite sure why it's not the christmas holidays yet (laughs) yes exactly so if we come across as being very bar humbug in this episode that will be the reason why and yes i have got covid like many people across uh, the world probably right now it just seems to be rearing its ugly head again and so i'm quite cross that we're not together with festive cuppers but we we continue tom yeah you managed three years no covid for three years congratulations i know and then in one fell swoop there it goes yeah oh wow well i was very ill last year if you remember with not covid with man flu I do remember. Yeah, I do remember. And, and I forced you to bring in food and, and yes. eat crisps. <laughs> That's right. And I had to edit out coughing fits a go-go, didn't I? Loads of them. Yeah. Well, hopefully there won't be any from me uh, on this occasion. But um, we will certainly bring you our usual six things each, our 12 <laughs> days of Christmas. Yeah. 
how, how was your homework, Tom? Did you, yes. uh, you manage to find six things? I have done my homework. I've got my six things. They're rather random. I'm still carrying on my resolution not to hit you with really horrible, difficult, knotty things that you have to respond to. So I'm, I've been good again this year. Thank you, particularly when I'm feeling poorly. Yeah. Well, m- mine fall into three categories. Um, the first being morbid curiosity. Okay. <laughs> the the second two, um, a little bit of culture. Uh, and then festive cheese. I've just gone all out. So I've even categorised mine. I, I have not categorised mine. I think a, a six item category called random stuff, I think, is about as far as we can get with mine. Okay, well, we'll hit us with your first bit of random stuff. Okay, well, this one, I had a bit of difficulty preparing this one. I wanted to give us uh, a book review of something to read that was absolutely nothing to do with teaching. Um, okay. What did I think would be nice to read over Christmas? And you know that I'm a big fan of all things to do with food, which basically just means I like eating. And yes. I really enjoyed the food-related writing of an author called Bill Buford. I don't know if you've come across him. No, no, no new one on me. <laughs> well, he, he wrote a really well-regarded book around the time of my NQT year. Uh, he was the something like the literature editor or something at the New Yorker magazine, which is a very prestigious uh, weekly Ooh. news magazine in, um, in New York, you know, very sort of metropolitan elite kind of thing. And, you know, no articles are shorter than about 7,000 words. Um, and he mm-hmm. left that job uh, in order to become a sort of kitchen dog's body to a New York celebrity chef. And the oh, book gosh. is like one of these immersive kind of memoirs. It's called Heat uh, by Bill Bluford. And I loved it. It was a really interesting book um, in which he sort of told of the behind the scenes life of the restaurant kitchen. And I also liked it because it had this sort of interesting dimension about the sort of weird male obsessiveness kind of gene, you know, in which he suddenly decided he absolutely had to go and learn to make pasta in Italy and all this kind of stuff. I mean, he, he sort of appears to be a bit of an obsessive, but he wrote a wonderful book and it was very good. But... Obviously, I couldn't read a massive extract from that in here. So I thought, okay, let's find one of his articles from The New Yorker. I found a fantastic article by Bill Buford about the time that he apprenticed himself to a a baker in France, in Lyon. Um, I thought, yes, this is beautiful. This is really well written. And then I realised that clocked in at seven and a half thousand words, uh, which was also no good. (laughs) And I thought, shall I abridge this? And I thought, no, I can't really do justice to this by abridging it. So the only thing I can bring you instead is um, a kind of semi book review of Heat, which was written by John Crace, who is now the political sketch writer for The Guardian. But he also does a column. I don't know if you've seen it in The Guardian called um, The Digested Read. Yes, in I which know. he mildly pokes fun at some book that's in the news. And so <laughs> he actually did a digested read about the book Heat by Bill Buford. So, I mean, it's probably going to put you off actually reading the book because he spends the whole, whole time um, poking fun at this book and the sort of ridiculous kind of male testosterone fueled kitchen thing and Bill Buford's obsessiveness and all of that. And actually, it's worth saying that Mario Batali, the celebrity chef that he apprenticed himself to as a kind of unpaid kitchen dog's body, is one of the many people that got on the wrong side of the Me Too movement since this book was published. So it kind of, in that way, it hasn't aged particularly well, although he wasn't 
painted as a particularly um, a sympathetic character by Bill Buford anyway, but it's, it's worth mentioning that. But uh, John Crace's digested read is loads of fun. So I thought I would read that to you and see if you still fancy reading the book. And it goes like this. It takes a man with a large ego to accept one of my dinner invitations. Mario Batali, chef and co-owner of Babbo, Manhattan's most famous Italian restaurant, is one of them. He came bearing his own quince-flavoured grappa. At that moment, I decided I was going to be Mario's kitchen slave, just as he'd once been Marco Pierre White's. I was going to give up my life as one of the most prestigious editors at The New Yorker. This was not to be some cheap voyeuristic trek to knock out a book that my media pals would lovingly review. It was my own private odyssey to the heart of darkness of the Italian pig. Where are your knives? barked Frankie. It was my first day on the prep line. Why hadn't it occurred to me I needed a knife? Frankie plunged a blade deep into my shoulder. I pulled it out, letting the blood spray heroically, accepting his act of generosity. I diced vegetables for 12 hours a day. Three months later, Mario gave me a nod. It was time for me to work the pasta station. I began by making oriecchiette, and blisters formed on blisters as the boiling water took its toll. But I was hungry for more. I wanted to make the tortellini. Most of all, I wanted to know when the Italians started putting egg in their pasta. I have to go to Italy for three months, I announced. Mario shrugged with manly compassion. I found a stable in the hilltop village of Poretta. By day, I would study the art of pasta fresca with better than 97-year-old nonna. By night, I would lie in a manger reading medieval works of Italian cuisine. It was Latini, the semi-literate forerunner to Marco Pierre White, who introduced eggs. I gabbled to Mario on my return. He yawned, feigning a homoerotic disinterest. You can now have a go at cooking the meats, he sighed. Vitello, Bistecha, the orders were piling up. Alejandro just stood and watched. I thrust my arms under the furnace of the grill, third-degree burns erupting in huge welts across my wrists. I refused to give in, my eyes blackening with smoke and pain, and I didn't miss a service. Alejandro held out his hand, and we arm-wrestled in a mandala of mutual respect. And yet, still, I was not yet in touch with my true inner manliness. I needed to go to Italy to study the art of butchery. The Tuscan village of Panzano was untouched by the modern world, and my quest took me to worship at the ancient shrine of Dario and the Maestro. This is a pig leg, said the Maestro, knocking back his second bottle of Chianti. I was now ready to be initiated into the rituals of the cow. You've become an adequate cook, said Mario on my return to New York. But I'm still not ready, father, I sobbed. I think I now need to go to France. So if you still want to read the book after that. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I I, I don't know. I was more impressed with the content of that or your pronunciation of the Italian uh, terms. What what was that? Pasta? Oriacchietti. Look, I've just thrown the page to the floor. Uh, Orecchietta. Actually, I think I made a made a hash of that reading it. Orecchietta. Yeah, it's it, John Crace does a good job of kind of uh, poking fun at the kind of ridiculous macho testosterone-ness of it. But actually, it's a, it's yeah. a very good book. It's very funny. It's very interesting. Uh, it's got lots of layers to it. It's beautifully written, as you would expect from the literature editor of the New Yorker. Um, well worth a read. He's, and and also his New Yorker article on on baking in Lyon as well. If you want something that's absolutely nothing to do with teaching, <laughs> love it. And uh, did it did it cause you to salivate and need to have a, you know a snack always at the ready as you were reading it? <laughs> it it caused me to want to cook more. I did. I did try various bits of cooking. I remember I was an NQT when I read the book, um, and I used to spend my weekends cooking. 
You, you're. I think you're a pretty good cook on the quiet. I remember you telling me a few weeks back that you were making yourself a steak dinner with Provencal tomatoes. Oh yes, 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 yes. <laughs> <laughs> and we don't have Provencal tomatoes in my house. You don't have those around your way, do they? <laughs> I might be doing my mum a, a terrible injustice there. <laughs> Maybe you call them something different in Thanet, and I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> oh, excuse me. <laughs> it must make you laugh. There we go. There's the COVID cough coming out. <clears throat> right, okay, lovely, like that. Um, I've got a funny feeling that heat either has either been turned into a film or maybe a Netflix documentary because I've just got a funny feeling. I might be wrong. Anyway, I will definitely have a look into that because I do like writing about food. (laughs) Not doing the act of writing. I do like reading about (laughs) food. (laughs) Okay, I suppose it's my turn now then. Yep. Um, So... We'll have one from my category, morbid curiosity. Um, I don't know whether I don't know what wh- whether this happened because I very recently was in um, a stage production of Agatha Christie's, and then there were none, um, or whether I've always had a bit of a morbid curiosity with true crime. Um, and I've got a colleague in work who I was talking to just just recently, and uh, we both found out that we have this sort of secret that uh, we both really like to watch and listen to consume true crime um, content. <laughs> so I guess this this one sort of fits in, into that category. Um, listeners uh, who've been with us for a while will know that we actually love podcasts ourselves. Um, and this is a podcast recommendation um, and it's called The Boy in the Woods. It's a BBC Sounds uh, podcast. And it's kind of a documentary in 10 parts. And it was uh, put together by Winifred Robson, uh, Robinson, sorry, who I'm sure many of you will know. Um, but I'll just give you a little bit of information about it. And, you know, I suppose a bit of a trigger warning. The content isn't the happiest. Um, but it was a really, really interesting listen, mainly because Winifred Robinson cares deeply about this story um, and managed to uncover some of the sort of injustices um, from the the, the point at which the crime took place, the initial investigation um, and what ensued afterwards. So as with all great documentaries um, in podcast form, there are lots of layers um, that come out in it. So Just taking this from the blurb, Winifred Robinson has been following this case. Um, This is the case of six-year-old Ricky Neve um, for more than 20 years. She's always felt it held the key to what goes wrong in the lives of society's most vulnerable children. Police built a case against Ricky's mother, but this investigation uncovers how crucial evidence was never brought before the court. Ruth Neve was never ja- sorry. Ruth Neve was jailed for seven years for child cruelty, while Ricky's killer was left at large. The series exposes how this happened and what it took for the truth to emerge. Original police interview tapes, evidence from forensic scientists and others who have never spoken to the media before, help piece together what happened. Close friends of Ricky, who were themselves vulnerable children, reveal for the first time how his death came to shape all their lives. Um, I just found it really fascinating. Um, it, it 
did hit that penchant of mine for for true crime um but it's also told uh, really well and um for anybody who enjoyed uh serial i think serial is something that we both talked about on this podcast uh, a few years ago um i think you will like this podcast documentary so go and have a listen if it is speaking to your kind of style oh well, that's nice so to have a proper review of a true crime podcast after i did one uh, a podcast that was very rude about true crime podcasts do you remember last year i do remember <laughs> yeah oh, i was funny you played me a bit of it yes. didn't you i remember now oh my gosh yes it was very unkind good to uh, rehabilitate the reputation of true crime podcasts which are definitely the runaway success aren't they the podcast genre they are they certainly are um and i i just i just love a listen as i'm cooking or you know walking the dog or whatever so yeah good one for you to have a have a listen to if you have the time and the inclination okay. um all right it's time for something random from me i am i'm going to attempt to play some music down the line to you now uh, which oh. I hope you're going to be able to hear. I don't know whether you're going to be able to hear me speaking over the top of it. That's the only problem. So fingers crossed you'll still be able to hear my voice over it while it's playing. Right. Um, okay. And uh, it's probably for people of a certain age, this piece of music is probably going to be very evocative of time and place. That's all <laughs> okay. I'm going to say. So here it comes. Bringing back memories of uh, your weekends, Yes, Emma. my dad. This is my dad. <laughs> is it? Round yeah. at my granny's while the sport was on the telly. I suppose for um, listeners of a younger age group, this was the theme music to the kind of BBC uh, broadcast. I think it used to take up pretty much the whole afternoon. Yeah. And it would be live sport, it would be rugby, football, whatever was on. Um, hosted by the inimitable Desmond Lynham back when yep. we were kids and uh, certainly for those of us of that age we probably did something at the weekends maybe we were round at relatives or maybe we were just uh, slobbing out in front of the telly watching whatever BBC Sport had for us why am I playing this? <laughs> oh beautifully done well, Breeze <laughs> thank you the reason that I'm playing this is uh, oddly enough it's to do with a random tweet that I spotted um, announcing the death of an unsung hero called Alan Hawkshaw and I don't know whether you saw this tweet or where I can't remember whether I retweeted it um, that piece of music is not by Alan Hawkshaw it's by a, a guy called Keith Mansfield um, but these two people have something in common and I have an article from the Guardian here that explains all They've written some of the most iconic tracks of the last 50 years, yet you've probably never heard of them. We meet the legends of library music. If you're wondering exactly what library music is, then perhaps the most surprising thing you're set to discover is just how well you already know it. Those stirring intros for Grandstand, Ski Sunday and Wimbledon, the quirky theme to Grange Hill. Again, younger, younger listeners, go find out what that was. The ominous drumbeat that opens Mastermind or the military march that signalled it was time for Crime Watch. These will all be familiar to readers of a certain age. Even if you're unaware, they were all plucked from the UK's vast archives of library music. Essentially, stock songs recorded with no definitive purpose other than to be perused and selected in the future for use on TV, film or radio projects. So Keith Mansfield, who, who wrote the Grandstand theme and the Wimbledon theme, says there was no pressure 
just have a hit record. We were making music that people might find useful. And some of that would be really unusual. The reason why the songs have stood the test of time is simple. They're clever pieces of music. Uh, then explains uh, one or two slightly geeky points about why the grandstand uh, theme, as we now know it, is quite a clever piece of music. Um, interestingly, uh, Kevin uh, Keith Mansfield, who composed it, uh, was really surprised when he found that the BBC had chosen that particular piece of music. He said, why have they chosen that? That's not sports music. But they saw in it things that I hadn't. They saw the fun in it and that it was quite chameleon-like. It could work for a small or a big event. And then it goes on to explain how they actually put these pieces together. It says they weren't long projects that had been in the works for months. Rather, they were bashed out six at a time during frantic three and a half hour sessions. And obviously, when they were recording them, they didn't know if they were going to go on to be some iconic theme or if they were going to disappear into a box and never be seen again. Um, you had the whole orchestra in the studio at the same time. There was very little time, very little control. There was no overwriting. Any mistakes made by the mu musicians went in. It goes on to say that the Grange Hill theme, which uh, many people of our age will probably remember from children's TV, that was a speedy example. Alan Hawkshaw was told during a session in Munich they had half an hour to spare and could he write something quickly? Luckily, I had some good players. I sketched it out and they came up with that. It was probably intended for a comedy at the time. Time was at a premium. Music musicians were expected to play on site. You had to walk in on the day, play what you were given. And Alan Hawkshaw, one of his fastest jobs was writing the opening music for Countdown, um, which obviously lots of people know Countdown and, and the music that they play when they've got 30 seconds to work out their anagrams or work out their maths. What we didn't know until I read the tweet, which started me off on this rabbit hole, was that the royalties from the Countdown theme, every time it's played, royalties are paid to a foundation supporting underprivileged students at the Leeds College of Music, meaning that every time you hear someone tackling a conundrum, it's helping mus a music student catch a break. John Cameron, another composer, has fond memories of them all running to the pub during their 15-minute break. The last one to the pub had to buy the beer. They had a string section who had to ride motorbikes everywhere because if they were in Olympia in the morning, Lansdowne in the afternoon and Kingsway in the evening, it was the only way they could get there and park in time. So, unsung heroes of music. Wow. That is... I think that's my favourite of your Christmas contributions to date. <laughs> it's such an amazing thing because these theme tunes are so well known. I mean, actually, weirdly, the sport yeah. ones are particularly well known. And that they were banging these things out six at a time with absolutely no idea what they were going to be used for. There's loads of really weird stuff. I mean, for example, I, I gather that the, the theme music for Channel 4 News was a piece of library music. And because it was not sort of... I don't know. I, I guess it, it wasn't nabbed in its entirety early on. It also appears in the score in a, for a cowboy movie. There is a cowboy movie that has the music for Channel 4 News in it because it was just pulled out of the box, you know, by the by the music people. Oh, wow. Yeah, because I had questions that popped up. One of them you answered because of the, the whole royalties thing, although you, mm. it's not fully answered. So where do the royalties go we know where they go for that particular but what generally library music who gets the royalties well it was a company um the, the article i've abridged the article a little bit it's about a company called kpm who were a library music company so they i guess their business model back in the day before you had computer equipment that makes music you know sequences and stuff they would mm. pay these composers who would write these jingles they pay some musicians a, a day rate to come and record them and then 
they would own the copyright on them and they would get the royalties when they were used. So I guess it was a gold mine if it got used for something that was on every day or every week. But it was probably Amazing. a bit of a gamble because something could just end up in the box and never get used. And so they used to release these vinyl records with loads and loads of these little tracks on. And then people like the BBC would subscribe to get these records. And then if they wanted to use one, it would it would get, you know, they'd get paid. And can you access the archives freely now? I'm just thinking schools K- would love Well, them. yeah, KPM have put their entire archive online. Well, it's on YouTube, I think. And there are some really strange pieces on there. Some of them are amazing and some of them are really odd. So memorable. I mean, the Grange Hill one, for those of a certain age, is, mm. they are they're, they're incredibly catchy and memorable yeah um and they and they do take you straight back but that bit about you know how are they keeping an audit of who's used them where well, because I suppose, yeah you've got to be honest if- you've got the performing rights society and mechanical copyright protection society who kind of do all the admin on this stuff but you you know you've got to be honest i suppose it's easier to be honest when your stuff's getting broadcast to millions of people <laughs> you can't claim mm. you didn't play the music out um but yeah i think i did hear a, i did read a thing by one um radio three presenter who confessed that their worst ever mistake in their career was to accidentally play the first half of a concert twice instead of the first half and the second half and then they had to pay double royalties (laughs) for the first half of the concert um but yeah another really interesting thing that came out of this was another unsung hero was uh, george fenton who did a lot of the news themes for the bbc before you got these these Mm -hmm. modern ones with all the beeps and the drums and everything he did a lot of the kind of Mm. orchestral stuff and he he did a really interesting interview on youtube about the fact that you've got to announce to the world that it's the news it's got to be authoritative it's got to be neutral and you've got nine mm. seconds to do it. Yeah. It's actually really so hard. True. Yeah, that is a tough gig. A bit of fun for a composer. Yeah, but definitely not easy. I mean, all of these things are sub one minute. I mean, that one I played yeah. was 56 seconds. And you've of got to gold. do... And that's long. I mean, that's really long for, for something like that. But yeah, you have to... You haven't got an hour and a half or, or even a kind of four minutes for a pop song. You've got seconds to set scenes. There's real skill to it. Nice, nice, nice little factoid that, you know, it turned out to be sporty, although the composer didn't didn't perceive it that way. Yeah. You you write a piece and you have no idea what it's going to end up as. Yeah. Very, very strange. Loved that, Tom. Great contribution. And I'm sure, as we said, anyone from a certain age was probably singing along yeah. some of those theme tunes, particularly the countdown one. <laughs> yeah, actually, interestingly, the grandstand one is longer than that. I edited it down to what the BBC used, but actually there's a big sort of middle eight section with a massive electric guitar solo in it on the original. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps we need that in the bonus material. Yeah. <laughs> or we get into trouble with royalties, the royalties. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Okay, well, I'm going to stick with the musical theme then. And I'm going to give you one from my little bit of culture um, uh, duo. So, believe it or not, until a couple of weeks ago, I had never been to a classical music concert, a live classical music oh, concert. Thayer. Had I, I known know. that, you, you would have been bundled up in a carpet and taken there in the back of my car. I can't believe that. I know it's just one of those things and I, and I, it got me sort of musing and reflecting and it's probably you know the, the the same reasons that would prevent maybe somebody that's new to a Shakespeare play from yeah. attending I think had gotten in the way of me just taking the plunge and going to because it, I am so 
uh, lacking knowledge and experience about classical music. I don't know what I, I kind of know what I like, but I don't know enough to know what I really like. Um, and I just, the etiquette, all of it, I just, just got really scared about going to it mm. and felt a bit like an imposter. So when the opportunity arose to go and see a colleague um, of ours, uh, Dr. Viv John, who we've had on the podcast, um, playing in the Ronda Symphony Orchestra in the Hodinot Hall um, Ooh, in nice the Wales Millennium Centre. Yeah, lovely. You, oh God, I was thinking about you when I was in there because I'm sure there's a <clears throat> massive organ hiding away <laughs> there as well. <laughs> Um, in the Wales Millennium Centre. And um, I think Viv knew that this was um, an opportunity, she spied an opportunity to get uh, a novice like me coming along because it was sort of a Shakespeare theme to the, the sort of suite of orchestral pieces that were played that evening. So we kicked off with Romeo and Juliet by Tchaikovsky. We had um, Walton's Henry V suite. We had West Side Story um, from Leonard Bernstein. So it was it was right up my street mm, really mm, so yeah exactly so right. it, it got me through the door which is important but um the thing i was a little bit nervous about and i was going with two colleagues who've actually been to see quite a lot of classical music so it was nice because they looked after me um and i realized um that i know a little bit about an orchestra but never in my wildest dreams did I realise sort of how interesting it would be to watch a classical <laughs> yeah. music con concert. Um, you know, maybe the, the reasons seem obvious um, it, it, to anybody who, who has been to see live orchestral music before, but um, I just found it to be a real feast for the eyes. I loved the sort of unspoken... Um, collaboration that was going on between the musicians and obviously the conductor um, but I had just had so much respect for the different instrumentalists there and and you know musicians who for some pieces didn't even play a note for, for ages and then all of a sudden they'd have like a beautiful solo or would have an absolutely crucial moment in a piece that added something that really would have been lost and an example of this is um uh, Viv herself um is I want to say she's a violin no, she's, sorry she's she's a clarinetist she's a not clarinetist she's a flautist yeah. sorry <laughs> yeah. see I told you I'm showing my showing my um oh, really? my lack of knowledge now but she's incredible flautist mm. so she had some some real standout solo moments but her daughter um is a harpist and I never quite realized the dimension that is added by a harp um and unless you know it's there um maybe to the untrained ear you wouldn't necessarily hear it because i could see it and i could see when it was coming in i could really notice the difference that it was making i don't know whether all of this is sounding incredibly green of me but um no, i <laughs> i loved it so what i thought i would do is because i i I thought, what can I do for other people like me who were maybe um, unconvinced? Um, and I thought, in the first instance, I'd, I'd ask you, you know, what, what would you say? What, what do you think um, somebody who is a complete novice uh, in, in going to a classical music concert, what do they need to know before they take the plunge and buy a ticket? And I, I've also got, I have got an article from The Conversation, but I, I know that I've got an expert uh, on this <laughs> podcast with me. So All right. you, you, tell, you tell me. What if I contradict uh, the, the mighty conversation? Well, the first thing to say is that there is, uh, there is this 
idea that everybody turns up to classical concerts in like dinner jackets and that there's some sort of impenetrable kind of etiquette which is not true I mean you just you turn up you sit you try not to talk too much although I have to say I I once did an orchestral concert in a concert hall in Glasgow and two old ladies had clearly just turned up to come in from the cold and were massively busted because there was one point where there was a very loud bit followed by a dramatic pause and the dramatic pause was filled with about half a second of them realising they could be heard gossiping (laughs) about five rows back but no as long as you go in and you don't kind of disturb everybody um there there is no kind of etiquette it is visually a real treat it's it's Mm. it's a great visual treat um from the kind of sublime sort of waftings of the harp if you look really carefully you discover that brass instruments have a special little bit that you can open to let all the spit drain out of the bottom that's a visual feast for the eyes oh i missed that Don't recommend uh, sitting too close to that. No, it is. It's visually very exciting. If you can sit quite near the front, it's extremely loud. um, Mm. And it's an awful lot of hard work going on. There's some serious physical work going on when you play. So, I mean, my only advice would be go watch something. You will be absolutely blown away by it. And the skill. I remember reading an article once that compared the skill level of professional orchestral players uh, to Premier League footballers, but with none of the money. Mm, it's quite mm. amazing to watch yeah I certainly could see I mean the percussionists my goodness <laughs> me what a workout for them yeah. it's incredible and oh, also yeah. the string the, I, I hadn't realised how much the, well certainly in the pieces that I saw and listened to were the beating heart of them seemed to be the string section the string section is just so fundamental it seemed to me yeah there's definite temperaments involved i mean if you look at the string part for a big piece of music it'll be like a book and if you look at say the flute part that viv was playing it's probably about four four or six pages but whereas Mm. viv has these sort of small number of massively high pressure moments the strings Mm. will be this kind of engine room and I mean the violas which I used to play in when I used to do orchestral stuff you know notoriously never get the tune at all and sit there Mm. chugging away and do this really kind of important stuff but never get heard by anybody so you have to pick your instrument according to your temperament I think Mm, yeah I could definitely see some characteristics of uh, of certain players but the other thing was some of some of the etiquette like I liked some of the conventions so Mm. The, the first violinist getting their own little clap and oh, yes. the moment. leader yeah the leader yeah didn't 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 realize that happened yes. wasn't sure what was going on there so my <laughs> uh, my colleagues were telling me uh, you know how to behave the other thing that came up in this article so you've you've covered one of the key questions that comes up in the conversation um the what should i wear bit but also when should i clap <laughs> and i i've got to say this did make me chuckle because you know there were moments where i felt like it had gone quiet but they were in the middle of the piece and I kind of wanted to clap but no one else was so I thought oh, get back in your box there um <laughs> yeah so the- <laughs> that's the thing about don't clap between movements you know if you've got a symphony mm. or a concerto it'll often have three or four movements which are like little self-contained pieces and the convention is you're not supposed to clap and actually the truth of the matter is the people on the stage are never really going to mind if you clap if you're doing you know if you're having a nice time and you want to express that in the gap that's absolutely fine what you will get is some pedantic person in the audience who thinks it makes them superior by glaring at somebody that claps between movements because they know and you don't that it's it's the done thing actually all of us up on the stage really don't mind (laughs) 
Ah, uh, no, yeah, that's that's good to know. I mean, I, I think I did the right thing. I just waited until I just <laughs> clapped and followed suit. But mm. um, no, it, it, it some of the advice, you know, it, it also says in the article, what else should I keep in mind? And it says go into the classical, t- to classical music should be about enjoying the concert, um, enjoy the spectacle. There's much to see at classical concerts, which is some of the things we talked about. The interactions between the conductor and the orchestra can be particularly interesting. And what was interesting for me was that um, actually Viv's uh, son was doing his orca- his um, conductor's sort of debut. He had to do it for an assessment. So the first piece, the Tchaikovsky piece, he was he was doing it for the first time, conducting the orchestra. And then his dad took over. So it was interesting to sort of see the contrast in approaches, which is fascinating we could talk about that for hours difference between the conductor and we've talked about this before haven't we what the director does in theatre and the role of the conductor and all of that so it's fascinating the dynamics um yeah and just seeing how how everything works together it says keep in mind that your musical taste expands as you expose yourself to new and unfamiliar sounds the more you listen the more you're likely to enjoy and I've got to say that has happened to me I'm, I'm hooked now and and I would love to go and see more um with it was good to go and see it with people who did have a sort of trained eye and ear and could um sort of guide me so tom book something for us (laughs) i shall be in touch with your schedule shortly i have to say some of the prices of some concerts are amazingly low um i mean the Mm. proms is the famous one of course i i don't know if it still is because i've not been there for a while but it it used to be five pounds to get in and then you either stood in that big arena you know that you will see on the telly or the little known fact of it was you could also go all the way up into the gods like up into the the very very highest bit up by the roof you could go and stand up there instead and i used to go up there for like five pounds or something and watch international orchestras for for a fiver i used to find the slightly odd eccentric people used to be down the bottom you know all the ones that you see on the telly and actually the top was full of students from the conservatoires who were all there getting in for a fiver it was brilliant yeah that is great you're right it was a very affordable night out and a very enjoyable one at that and by gosh those musicians they like a drink afterwards don't they (laughs) move straight in the (laughs) Oh, yes. Straight in the bar. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, most definitely. I always used to find if I was on a music teacher's training day um, when I was back in school, the thing to do was to find the brass player because their instincts would kick in at lunchtime and you'd find yourself at the front of the lunch queue, you know, the the after concert bar instinct. If you could find a trombonist, you had it made. You're going to be front of the queue if you stuck close to them. (laughs) Good advice. (laughs) That's not the conversation. (laughs) No, I should probably acknowledge that that conversation article is entitled I'm going to a classical music concert for the first time. What should I know? By Timothy McHenry, um, Australian Catholic University, who wrote that. There we go. We should all go to some more classical concerts because everyone involved is working extremely hard and being paid. I mean, Viv's Orchestra is an amateur orchestra, but even even the pros get paid extremely poorly for what they're doing. I mean, Musicians Union rates works out at about it used to be about one hundred and ten pounds for a rehearsal and a concert, which is not a lot when you think about what they're doing and that there's probably only going to be a concert a week, you know. Mm, mm, they have my my utmost respect and i will definitely be going along more marvelous well this this is an interesting segue not quite not quite the one that it should be but you said you'd been to see uh, west side story by leonard bernstein Burn- the yes total yes. genius that is leonard bernstein i'm going to bring some basil bernstein 
nice. to the table. Yeah, not a musician at all. Leonard Bernstein, musical genius. Basil Bernstein, sociological genius. And this is my heavy bit for the podcast. Okay, um, you strap in. Remember that most of these, I attempt to boil down some enormous and really heavy piece of academia for the consumption of those who like a bit of their Christmas greens. So I'm going to do it again. Okay. <laughs> this is your sprouts, right? So those who know me will know that I recently uh, had the interesting and memorable experience of doing my PhD Viper, which was both interesting and memorable. <laughs> and uh, as part of that, as part of my very kind feedback from uh, Professor Ruth Wright, a uh, big Canadian cheese of music education and the sociology of music education, she sent me as a very nice hint that perhaps I should have known it slightly better, um, an article about this Basil Bernstein, who I had uh, perhaps unwisely referred to a bit obliquely in my PhD thesis without perhaps doing the homework. It's actually his obituary article because he died in the year 2000. Um, but he, Basil Bernstein, was a very big cheese of sociology. And I read this thing dutifully. <clears throat> And I found that there's an awful lot of really interesting stuff in here. And I would just like to suggest that we might like to get to know Bernstein a little bit better, particularly, oddly, those of us who are working in the new curriculum in Wales. Mm. Because when you talk about sociologists and education, lots of people will name check the mighty Bourdieu. Uh, and we know that Dr. Viv did that in a previous mm -hmm. podcast. Bourdieu is well known, um, kind of impenetrable French philosopher type, very hard to understand. There's a whole kind of cult-like world around Bourdieu. His stuff is very, very interesting. Bernstein doesn't seem to quite get the same sort of mainstream, if I, mainstream is the word, mainstream kind mm. of traction that Bourdieu does. But actually reading this obituary and, and kind of reading this summary of his work, um, I did think there was actually some potentially very, very relevant stuff for us um, in the new curriculum. So what I'm not going to do is, is read the obituary of Basil Bernstein, not least because it runs to about 13 or 14 pages. But just to summarise the fact that he was very interested in the way that education, that schooling, um, despite what it probably thinks it's doing, he felt that it, it could and did work to reproduce the inequalities of social class. Um, so he was kind of pointing out all of these really interesting things about the way that language is used in different social classes. Uh, he went on to define classification and framing as the way that teachers either keep control or give away control of the choice of content and the, the way that the, the learning kind of takes place, the direction of the learning. That was very interesting. And um, he differentiated and i'm quoting here between a pedagogic practice that's dependent on the economic market that emphasizes vocational education and another that is independent and autonomous of the market that is legitimated by the autonomy of knowledge now that's a very highfalutin way of saying isn't it interesting to think about the way some of the discourse is framed in england at the moment mm. about education being you know, for the masses very much being about learning to kind of do as you're told and, and, you know, make yourself employable. And this sort of slight, I would suggest, uh, this this hijacking, if that's not too much of a word, of Bourdieu's concept of cultural capital as a kind of very simplistic tool of social mobility. 
this idea that you get educated to get a job you know and and the class kind of distinctions that are not very far below the surface in that um so he wrote about that he interestingly and this i need to find out more about this um he concluded that both the kind of vocational education kind of system uh, aimed at economy and a more independent and autonomous one neither would eliminate the reproduction of class inequalities which i think is very interesting and i don't know any yeah, details about and i want to find out more oh so I just think because obviously we had uh, Lucy Crean, the mighty Lucy Crean on, didn't we, this year? And mm. she was talking about her concerns for the new curriculum, the fact that it might amplify existing inequities, that, you know, the haves will be OK, but the have-nots may find that they have even less. There's this kind of uh, bit of a sort of debate around at the moment about what we do, how we do the curriculum. There's a conscious placing of ourselves in Wales um, in opposition to that very vocational, very kind of economic view of education. And yet, actually, I wonder how many of us who are right at the sharp end of this stuff are familiar with this really important work by Bernstein and what it says about the reproduction of inequalities of social class. And I, for one, will be trying to find out more about it. Oh, well, I'd like to say you struck gold there, but really Ruth Wright did. Oh, and, she is uh, a legend, did. yes the teacherly thing and put it underneath your your nose so that you could have a good look at it <laughs> yes she did we really need to get the mighty ruth on the podcast she is one of the nicest people in the business but is also a seriously big cheese of sociology of education which meant i was very much not waving but drowning when being grilled by her in my viper <laughs> hmm. although within touching distance yes. of being a doctor i'm just gonna drop that in there since you brought it up <laughs> so we should all applaud and raise our raise our glasses to, to tom breeze because you did very well well there we uh, go i don't think it was an easy uh, it was conversation, not an easy was it? ride but I, you know i thank ruth Wright very much for not giving me an easy ride because it was very interesting i mean i did feel like i wanted to go to sleep when i came out of the the thing i was so tired it reminded mm. me when i used to have my sessions with professor peter williams the great bach scholar of my my masters i used to come out feeling like i've been beaten up after two hours with him and it's been a while since i've been in with someone like that but yeah thanks to ruth for that it's very very interesting and anyone that wanting something a bit more wholesome for their christmas fair might wish to seek out the work of basil bernstein lovely thank you very much tom well if we're going for wholesome i think i will match you although not quite to the same degree but i would say that this academic is pretty up there in the world of Shakespeare. So this is um, a little bit of culture. Um, I recently went to Stratford with my lovely colleague Tom Breeze and my yes. other lovely colleague Shona David. We had a marvellous time we at did. the USET uh, conference, didn't we? We had a lovely time. We did. And I can't go to, I just physically cannot set foot in Stratford without attending the Royal Shakespeare Company. <laughs> um, and I didn't get to go and see a production, sadly, because we, we went to a very memorable conference dinner instead. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure all of the people at that conference dinner would, would now consider it memorable, simply because I'm not quite sure how much of what went on they will now remember. <laughs> I don't know whether we should keep you guessing about that. It, it, it did involve a, a very memorable Rod Stewart impersonator. Yes, a Rod Stewart impersonator <laughs> who very much came into the lion's den, didn't he? Oh, he money. did. 
He really did. Um, but no, we had a fantastic time at the conference. Um, I didn't get to go and see the Royal Shakespeare Company, but I did get uh, a little bit of time to have a look around the RSC shop. Yes. <laughs> you let me indulge myself for about 20 minutes. Um, and I picked up uh, a little book by Emma Smith, who is a big cheese in the world um, of Shakespeare. But what I like about Emma Smith, um, she, she's a professor, professor of Shakespeare studies at Hartford College. Um, and she, she makes, in my opinion, makes Shakespeare and sort of critique of Shakespeare and analysing Shakespeare accessible to the masses. And I think this book does just that. This book is called This is Shakespeare, How to Read the World's Greatest Playwright. Um, and I just thought I'd read you just a little bit from her introduction, um, because if anyone is out there who has neither been to see nor read um, a Shakespeare play, which I think is probably, um, you're quite unique if that's the case, because Shakespeare is the most widely taught um, playwrights on the curriculum um, the only named author that seems sort of indelible <laughs> you know he's always there yeah. on the curriculum so you've probably encountered it and maybe had a bad experience and are interested in 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 trying to sort of put that right um, but this book is a nice place to start so this is from her introduction she says why should you read a book about Shakespeare because he is a literary genius and prophet whose works speak to more they encapsulate the human condition because he presents timeless values of tolerance and humanity because his writing is technically brilliant and endlessly verbally inventive because he put it all so much better than anyone than anyone else nope is what emma smith says that's why um that's not why not at all she says Sure, that's what we always say about Shakespeare, but it doesn't really get to the truth about the value of these works for the 21st century. The Shakespeare in this book is more questioning and ambiguous, more specific to the historical circumstances of his own time, more unexpectedly relevant to ours. Lots of what we trot out about Shakespeare and iambic pentameter and the divine right of kings and Merry England and his enormous vocabulary, blah, 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 is just not true and just not important. They are the critical equivalent of dead catting in a meeting or negotiation, placing a dead cat on the table to divert attention from more tricky or substantive issues. They deflect us from investigating the artistic and ideological implications of Shakespeare's silences, inconsistencies, and above all, the sheer and permissive gappiness of his drama and this is sort of I'm, I'm coming off book here a little bit um this is uh, the sort of crux of her approach to this book she's she's inviting the reader to look at what Shakespeare doesn't tell us and doesn't say and uh, suggests that it's in those moments that we can really start to think about you know why and what that means so she goes on a bit later in the introduction um, she says, um, does anyone actually like reading this stuff? She says, yes, and I hope this book will give some indications how. It is not an attempt to cut Shakespeare down to size, but I do hope that it might open, you, uh, open out to you a less dogmatic, less complete, more enjoyable Shakespeare. This is a Shakespeare you could have a drink and a good conversation with, rather than one you have to bow before. I don't have a grand theory of Shakespeare to inculcate, still less do I think I have access to what Shakespeare meant. Confession, I don't really care what he might have meant, and nor should you. 
I want to explore the ways in which Shakespeare's plays are spacious texts to think with about agency, celebrity, economics, friendship, sex, politics, privacy, laughter, suffering, and about a ton of topics, including art itself. Um, so that's it, really. And she takes um, a number of his plays in sort of chronological order in which uh, they were written so you still sort of get a sense of how his writing was developing over time but she gives a sort of fresh new perspective on them and she doesn't do it in you know dense academic language Um, she makes it really accessible and I bought this because um, I'm about to embark on another play I'm going to be doing much ado about nothing Um, and I found that chapter of hers particularly um, helpful she's making lots of references to um, more modern rom-coms yeah and I just I just I like this idea that this is a Shakespeare who you can have a pint and a chin wag with about what he didn't include and what this might mean so there we go and uh just as a kind of slightly peripheral point to this i always have an awful lot of respect for academics you know like peter williams who i mentioned earlier he was a a international specialist in the work of j.s bach you've got uh, emma smith was it emma smith emma smith of hartford college expert you know professor of of shakespeare so many academics pick some incredibly (laughs) obscure thing to specialize in and you always have this slight suspicion that perhaps they're doing it because it's you know it's a nice small pond where there's not going to be too many people trying to kind of get you but if you're going to be a professor of Shakespeare or Bach you really are just saying come at me (laughs) (laughs) you've got to be good to be a professor of a household name I think well I think so but I th- I think what I like about the likes of Emma Smith who is at you know at those dizzy heights is she actually does quite a lot to make it accessible as well and to, mm. to not sort of distance herself from the masses someone else who does this who I really like and her name has escaped me um oh gosh what's she name? she's a classics um professor um oh what is her name I will have to remember um I will I will update you I will google her and she does it incredibly well as well and she's quite she's quite um active on twitter as well i'll I'll look her up um but yeah people who who make their make the work accessible um and help people sort of penetrate it in a way um that that you know lets anybody get involved is 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 all right by me is also usually pretty good at what they do because they don't need to hedge it around in obfuscation do they no correct Lovely. Um, yeah, so over to you whilst I frantically search for this female yeah. classic. It's not Mary professor. Beard, is it? Yes, Mary oh, Beard. Yes, sure. Mary Beard. Of course, Mary Beard. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sorry, <then we> <laughs> COVID brain, very foggy. <laughs> I'm uh, pleased to be your Google for today. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> All right, it's over to time you. for my um, regular technological rant. Uh, which hopefully will maybe get a few people making some New Year's resolutions regarding the way that they teach. This is, none of this is going to be news to you, Emma, but never mind. Here we go. This is a news story from the technology site The Register from 2011. Um, and it certainly solves my problem of knowing who to vote for as long as I can emigrate first. The headline is Anti-PowerPoint Party Vows End to Death by Slides. 
Here we go. Everybody complains <laughs> about PowerPoint presentations, but nobody does anything about them until now. Meet Switzerland's anti-PowerPoint party, a.k.a. the APPP. The APPP sees itself as the advocate of approximately 250 million people worldwide who every month are obliged to be present during boring presentations in companies, universities or at other institutions, read the, reads the party's mission statement. The APPP's founder, Matthias Perm, is a man on a mission and his objection to PowerPoint is not merely that presentations based on it are a god-awful bore, but also that they're a crippling drain on the world economy. According to the APPP's calculations, the use of PowerPoint and, to be fair, other presentation software such as Apple's Keynote results in an annual monetary destruction, in quotes, of 110 billion euros in Europe alone. The APPP posits this somewhat alarming figure by assuming that presentations take place in 11% of companies and educational institutions, averaging twice a week, and that the average number of attendees is 10, although in larger institutions that number may be umpteen times higher. The APPP then assumes that 85% of participants believe these presentations are killing motivation. Mash those numbers together with the average EU pay rate and the number of EU workers and you get that €110 billion Euro destruction. Something must be done to stop this insanity, says the APPP. PPP. If you in the future also want to say less often during presentations, had I only stayed at home, then you can do something. And that something is to join the APPP. Swiss law makes it easier than in most countries to form a political party and Perm is taking advantage of that democratic freedom to get his word out. The party aims to launch a national referendum to obtain a law forbidding PowerPoint during presentations, the party's establishing articles declare. Perm is personally a bit less draconian. What we want is people to start deeply talking about PowerPoint, he says. That is the reason we exist. Good man, Matthias Perm. Are you Perm in disguise? Or I might have be. you already started to arrange your uh, emigration to Switzerland? I have to say, and actually what was quite amusing about, about that is while I was reading that article, the motion activated lights in the office went off. I'm now sitting <laughs> completely in the dark. You were majestic. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> no, they've gone off. I can't see anything. Oh, I'm I thought they were off and you were dead. <laughs> I thought you were trying to say you got so passionate that the lights are now on. No, I'm so lacking in passion because it's the end of turn that the lights actually have not noticed that I'm in here. But (laughs) that aside, (laughs) there is a serious point to be made, people, about PowerPoint (laughs) and the fact that it is a crutch to unconfident teachers. It is a soporific to passive students it is an invitation for your teaching to run on rails with very little kind of interaction and innovation and students seem to think that if they collect the slides they're kind of collecting some badge of honor that they attended the session um, rather than doing what you're supposed to do in teaching and learning which is to engage to question to discuss and occasionally to go a little bit off piste which is a whole lot harder to do if you set the whole thing up as some awful deck of powerpoint slides so for your new year's resolution this year people stop it (laughs) (laughs) get off that soap bops (laughs) and you know what as i said that the lights came back on i must have uh, must have gained a suitable amount of passion at that point but yeah seriously honestly why do we do it why do we get people in a room which you know in this day and age post-covid we don't Mm. actually have to be in a room um and and yet then we we kill the whole thing stone dead with a bunch of bullet points yeah we kind of kid ourselves that um we can't live without it and that you know it will 
it will help us. But actually, I've found that if I tried to stay too wedded to a PowerPoint, I hinder myself more. So, yeah, I agree. I, I, I realised how bad it was when I came out and into my NQT year. I, I didn't use PowerPoint at all when I was training and went to my first my first job and everyone was using them. So I think I got into really bad habits as a result of that when really I think I was far more, far more free and a better teacher without them. Yeah, I didn't use it at all in the classroom, hardly. I used to use a pen and a board. (laughs) And then I came here and I was like, what is this? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, they've got to go. Yeah, I will uh, make it a New Year's resolution, Tom. Good. Not that I'm saying you're a terrible PowerPoint person, but, you know, there, are, there, there is a police... You know, Time and a place. I was teaching the other day, you know, and, and, and there was this... We were doing it. We were doing an online session and, and we just got this message going, can we have the slides, please? And it's like, well, there aren't mm. any. Like, yeah. pin your ears back and listen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. It does. They were right about it sort of being a soporific. It, yeah. it, can, it can dumb down the thinking that's that you want to be going on yeah. in the room yeah paul carr in his book uh, bringing nothing to the party describes it as the um satan's own office tool <laughs> i was going to use a chunk from that book but there were too many naughty words in it so i couldn't oh dear well i um i feel that way a little bit about excel but that's probably because i haven't taken the time to get to know and understand <laughs> excel <laughs> mm. but there we go all right we should probably move on, shouldn't yes, we? Yes, we should. And, um, it's your turn. I, yeah, it is my turn. I've got a quick one, and it's it, I've got a book recommendation, um, something that is not education-related or is kind of loosely related, I suppose. Um, for my birthday, I was given this um, crime fiction novel. So this is still in the morbid curiosity category <laughs> of my right. of my six things. Um, and this is a book by Rosamond Lupton called Three Hours. Um, and from the blurb, it says, in rural Somerset, Minehead to be exact, which is a bit of a spoiler, um, in the middle of a blizzard, the unthinkable happens. A school is under siege. Pupils and teachers barricade themselves into classrooms, the library, the theatre. The headmaster lies wounded in the library, unable to help his trapped students and staff. Outside, a police psychiatrist must identify the gunman, while parents gather desperate for news. In three intense hours, all must find the courage to stand up to evil and save the people they love. And I just thought that this was just a rip-roaring, unput-downable work of fiction. So many people, particularly crime writers, have just... Pray, given showered this book with praise and I agree with it all just brilliant really fast paced but also uh, just good character development um, good insight into a range of different characters and deals with a lot of different themes um, and I'm not going to go into any of them because there'll be too many spoilers and I wouldn't want to deny anybody um, the joy of watching this um, unfold you will be on the edge of your seat and you won't be able to put it down so that's three hours by Rosamond Lupton I had a moment there when you said we were going back to morbid curiosity and in my mind I think subconsciously I also went back to your first category which was also true crime I was going what when did this yeah. happen <laughs> And yeah. you said the only important <laughs> oh, <no>. word, fiction. <laughs> 
Yes, crime fiction, <laughs> definitely crime fiction. Um, but uh, Rosamond Lupton really did her research, and it sent me down the rabbit hole a little bit that you know into um, school shootings. And I'm, I'm t- uh, outing myself here again. My morbid curiosity. I shouldn't shouldn't have a morbid fascination with these things, but. I do and um, this book was uh, I'd obviously done a lot of research into the sad uh, facts that these things have happened in the past um, mostly in America but obviously Dunblane you know we, we all know of the ones that have happened here but this was, is definitely fictional um, and quite a bit of it is, is set in the drama studio <laughs> so it, it, uh, it, it definitely floated my boat but wow. yeah definitely a good one to, to add to um to your pile of books that you will probably never find time to read <laughs> yeah, label reading about work <laughs> <laughs> no good so there we go okay over to you uh here we go this was a post that was posted on facebook and regular listeners will know that therefore i will not have seen it however <laughs> It was reported in the news, which meant that I did then see it, because as we know, I, I think that Facebook is, is several rungs below PowerPoint in the circles of hell. However, yes. uh, somebody called Paul Callan uh, posted this on Facebook. And this is interesting because, of course, for some of us, we, we trained as teachers. Uh, we did the whole teacher thing. Um, mm-hmm. And then we had children and get to see it from the other side. <laughs> Which is quite interesting. Um, So this person, Paul Callan, hit the news with what is, I believe, known as a viral post after posting the following uh, on Facebook. Do other schools send out weekly newsletters like this? I've had to hire a PA for my daughter. Dear parents, a reminder that on Monday the children are asked to wear coloured contact lenses to raise awareness of the critically endangered Guatemalan colourblind tree gecko. Please bring a £1 donation. Tuesday is the start of Medieval Ruins Awareness Month. Please bring in a 1 to 8 scale model of your child's favourite 11th century Roman fortress. Don't forget your £1 donation to support our Historical Reenactment Society. On Wednesday, Mr Bachelor, head of PHSE, will be trying to eat as many cup of soups as he can in an hour to raise money to repair the roof of the sports hall. Please bring in a £1 donation. The children have busy making Christmas pictures out of felt and glitter. These half-finished abominations could be printed onto a tea towel, £17, or mouse mount, £13. If we have any budding Hollywoods, uh, Paul Hollywoods or Pre-Leaths amongst the parents, it would be a great help if you could make 50 to 100 gluten-free, nut-free, diabetic-friendly mince pies for the upcoming Christmas fair. And so it goes on. And I have to say, <laughs> schools, right? <laughs> With my parents' hat on here. These things are all such lovely ideas, but I can't keep track of them. Leaving aside the need to have millions of one pounds sitting in it. You know, I have one one pound coin, which I use for the trolley in the supermarket. (laughs) It's a precious artifact in these days of contactless payments. And I don't want (laughs) to lose it. But honestly, one week they're wearing red. The next week they're wearing blue socks for awareness of something else. The next day they're going on a trip. Then PE day moves. Then they're doing something else. Then you've got to bring in cakes. Then, honestly, please... Either stop it, (laughs) dial it down, or put it all in an easy-to-read shared document that I can look at first thing in the morning and work out what colour pants I'm putting on them today. (laughs) Oh, that's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. And so true. And this time of year is the worst for it, isn't it? Oh, my goodness me. It was Christmas jumper day today. It was, what was it? It was something else. Oh, they were wearing something... Were they wearing something blue last Friday? I can't remember. Honestly, it's like a... It's like a tidal wave of admin that I really don't need. Oh, my word. Well, 
you uh, you haven't got much money, too much change left of a fifty pound note after that that list. You've got mm. like, gosh. Well, it's more. How mm. am I going to get my trolley? Is is more important? If I give it that pound, <laughs> yeah. if I have to be the tooth I... fairy, that's it. No trolleys till I can break another note somewhere. Yeah, the tooth fa- fairy is gone bust. That's a high pressure <laughs> occupation, let me tell you. <laughs> tooth fairy. <laughs> It's like being a bomb disposal expert, honestly. Anyway. I have heard as much, <laughs> and I remember being a child and the lengths that my parents had to go to to keep the secret. Oh, yeah. make sure there's no children. Oh yeah, no. Oh, it's like that one the other year, isn't I it? I know. It's Father it is. Christmas. Now I've told. Yeah. Okay. Bomb disposal. You have to put a warning. To, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Trigger warning. Bomb disposal. School shootings. Tooth fairy. <laughs> I'm going to have to um, keep us moving along here, Breeze, because yeah. this episode's turning into an epic, isn't yeah, it? Always does. Um, okay. So um, my next one, I'm just going to start reading it. This is a, a, an article from The Conversation again, and this is from Andrea Wright, um, Senior Lecturer in Teaching and Learning Development. Cult movies. Cult is often indiscriminately applied to film and television. In cult movies, film critic Danny Perry argued that it should be reserved for special films for which, uh, which, for one reason or another, have been taken to heart by segments of the movie audience, cherished, protected and, most of all, enthusiastically championed. Subsequent academic and popular debates suggest it is a malleable label, but notwithstanding its, its elasti- elasticity, not all films can claim cult status. Despite their era, genre or industry, cult films stand out because audiences have a special, lasting connection with them that goes above and beyond normal patterns of consumption. One such example is The Muppet Christmas Carol, which (laughs) turned 30 in 2022. Now, Tom, have you seen The Muppet Christmas Carol? I know you're not a big film watcher. I have seen hardly any films. I am dreadful with films, but I have seen The Muppet Christmas Carol, yes. (gasps) There we go. And would you you describe it as a cult classic? I don't know if I'd describe it as a cult classic. It's very good. Mm, Okay, well, I'll I'll carry on. Yeah, I don't Um, know if it's a cult classic, no. No, well, maybe Andrea will convince you. The ritualistic rewatching of certain films during the holidays, combined with a strong sense of nostalgia, both historical and personal, that circulates during the festive season, fosters a lasting connection between movie and viewer that can that can elevate films to cult status. So she's trying to posit that there is much more um, of a risk with uh, Christmas movies of them reaching this kind of status. So the special combination of a treasured story and beloved characters for a much loved and much missed creator makes for particularly heady nostalgia in The Muppet Christmas Carol. It's a nostalgia that continues to lure audiences long after initially dis- an initially disappointing box office performance released in a period still under the shadow of Jim Henson's untimely death. Um, Among the many screen adaptations of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, The Muppet Christmas Carol is unique, not least because it casts Gonzo, the unclassifiable whatever, as Dickens and Rizzo the Rat, playing himself, as his grounded, wisecracking sidekick. It draws on yearnings, yearnings for snowy 
Victorian Christmases and expertly balances humour, dread and sentimentality. As Kermit himself tells us in a behind-the-scenes interview for Entertainment Tonight, the team tried to stay faithful to the original. The only difference, he argues, is that there's a lot of frogs and pigs and chickens and rats playing the main parts. I think Charles would have liked it that way. In the tradition of Jim Henson Productions, including The Muppet Show, but also in uh, big screen outings, The Dark Crystal, 1982, and Labyrinth, my personal favourite, 1986, uh, the set is brought to life by a menagerie of colourful creatures and anthrop- anthropomorphised plant life. God, that was a difficult one. She didn't write this Pop- one to be read out loud, did she? You're doing very well. She didn't. We're nearly there. Popular <laughs> Muppet characters bring their own special nostalgia for, f- for physical puppetry techniques in an age of digital technologies. Now, the bit that I really like is this bit now. Michael Caine, no stranger to cult by way of Get Carter 1972, is serious and gruff as Scrooge, seemingly oblivious to the Muppet mayhem around him. And director Brian Henson said that Caine only agreed to take the role if he could play it like he was working with the Royal Shakespeare Company and it's so true he plays it just so committedly and it's just beautiful and it really does um, make for a, a fantastically good Christmas movie um, but um, what does she say at the end I quite like what she says at the end about cult class- classics um, she says um, the enduring popularity of the film also demonstrates a continuing um, affection for Jim Henson that has been especially pronounced in the UK um, it's a bond enhanced by his personal and professional ties to the cap- uh, capital via the London Creature Shop which operated in the city between 1979 and 2005 and what does she say she says Draw upon, drawing upon several critical perspectives on season cult classic classics fan studies scholar Renee Middlemost concluded that something peculiar happens when we embrace our favourite Christmas movies by suspending one's typical typical tastes and critiques she argues cynicism can be transcended in favour of ritual and social bonding in this way the ritual bonding over these films functions as an extension of the season itself or as put more simply in lyrics from the Muppet Christmas Carol itself wherever you find love it feels like Christmas so there you go nice Muppet Christmas Carol cult classic which I thoroughly agree with and I'll be watching it over the festive season (laughs) very good and that was not an easy uh out loud read was it that article goodness me no it was not so apologies for the stumbles uh... (laughs) (laughs) makes me think of a story that apparently one of the radio 4 newsreaders berated a a script writer for writing the words dismissed this as a myth (laughs) and refused to read it on air a tongue twister i think that. all that elasticity and malleability was uh it was a close second to that yes heroic work there still not sure it's a cult classic but it is very good no yeah, no nah, that's that's fair you stay on the fence maybe watch it again and uh to watch more maybe. films i guess yeah maybe all right your <laughs> all right. penultimate one uh, no my final oh no yeah my final one. Oh, yeah. your final one yeah you're yeah, right I think I've, done six now. I've run out of paper anyway so if there's another one i've lost it <laughs> all right <laughs> So, um, every now and again, we, we get a strange email, don't we? Because we're, we're, we're publicly available on the net, um, email-wise, mm-hmm. contact detail-wise. Mm-hmm. And possibly the weirdest email, um, and very nice but very strange, was one that I received on the 2nd of September this year from someone called Francis Muxinski, who I did not know, um, who wrote, Dear Mr. Breeze, 
which is a very nice start. I recently put a comment on Facebook asking, does anyone know a composer called Thomas Breeze? He's written the most <laughs> splendid setting of The Christmas Carol, Unto Us a Boy is Born, but I cannot find anything about him, including whether he's dead or alive, whether he's English or not. This piece, is, this piece of music is all I have to go on. And then there was a screenshot of a bit of music. Um, and, and then it carries on. And someone has suggested you might be him. Are you? Uh, I love this piece of music. have absolutely no clue how it got into my repertoire, so I'd like to find out a bit more background on it. My choir sang it at church the Christmas before lockdown. If you aren't, then I apologise for bothering you. Well, spoiler alert, yes, it was me. Um, and I'm alive. <laughs> <laughs> brilliant. That is so strange. Absolutely brilliant. <laughs> to know that on Facebook, where, of course, as we, we know, I would never see it, there was a bunch of people discussing whether I was some kind of dead composer from the past was kind Fantastic. of weird. um but yes uh, it was a it was a, a screenshot of a page of this carol which which indeed i had written and i wrote back to this very nice person francis francis maksinski um, who turned out to be from a church choir somewhere in oxfordshire i think it was who had Ooh. found this carol and i had to explain that this was a carol that i had composed <laughs> aged about 15 um for a competition which was run by uh, my local choral society um, down in Monmouth, which I actually was a, a singer in that choir when I was in school. They used to do loads of concerts around the place and they had this thing called Compo Compose a Carol. And I'd composed this Christmas carol and I'd won the competition and the prize, I think they'd given me a bit of money as a prize, which was very nice. And they'd also recorded the carol um, and released it as part of some CD, Christmas music CD release. And then, you know, that that was the end of that, really. I played the organ on the on the recording session and, and I think they sang it in a couple of their Christmas concerts, which I was involved in. And that was the end of that. And somehow this piece of music that I'd written, which I'm not even sure I've got a copy of, um, a, a written copy, had surfaced in a church choir in Oxfordshire. And during lockdown, it had been performed as part of the christmas celebration so that was kind of nice and kind of weird um but yes my uh, 15 year old christmas carol composition had uh, had been resurfaced and they all thought i was some sort of you know eminent but possibly dead composer now i'm sorry if you already said this and i wasn't listening carefully enough but am i right in thinking that you won this competition more than once <laughs> and we had to stop yeah. you from from <laughs> Didn't they have to stop you from? Of, yeah, I got banned. <laughs> I got banned. I won it twice, and it already looked a bit dodgy because I was actually a member of the choir. I mean, they didn't get a lot of entries because what they were asking for was a full choral setting of some Christmas words um, for choir. It could be unaccompanied, but I mean, I wrote it with an organ part as well because I was an organist. Um, and so you, you know, you didn't have an enormous number of takers for that because it's quite hard to do. Um, but yeah, I did. I won it the second year. I, I entered with a with a carol I didn't think was quite as good actually, and then they banned me. Um, yeah. So anyway, I, I dug out the recording and I sent good. it to this lady, this nice lady, and, and sent her a recording of of the choir doing it. Yeah, it was really nice. That is lovely and very heartwarming in this festive season. Well yes, done, you. I've, uh, I've dug out a little bit of it. If you want to have a listen, <gasps> uh, not the whole thing. The whole thing's two and a half minutes long. But this is the kind of. The little end bit. I wrote myself a lovely big organ part to blast out as well. Well, you're right.
very see, festive. See, that's the kind of music that I crave this time of year. Yeah, well done to the Sopranos of Monmouth Choral Society for womanfully singing that extremely high part I gave them. I was perhaps a bit inexperienced in uh, writing for choir at that point, so apologies to them. <laughs> <laughs> they got there. They did. Brilliant. They just about got there. Yeah, there we go. So I am not dead is the festive You news. are. It's, that's good news for me. I don't think I could do this without you. <laughs> Selfishly. Oh, there we go. <laughs> oh, lovely stuff. Okay, well, we'll stick with the music theme then to oh. round this uh, epic Christmas episode off. Yes. Royalties to me, um, by the way, for that last one. <laughs> yeah, there we go. <laughs> so I've got. I gave you some homework. You did. Um, I did. And um, in uh, true sort of educational style, I've asked you to do a rag rating task. Yes. The non-educationalists, <laughs> red, amber, green. Rag rating. Yes. Yes. Indeed. Um, I've asked you to pick three Christmas songs. They can be carols, orchestral music, you know, pop songs, whatever you like, really, mm-hmm. as long as they fit the Christmas theme. Um, red for um, the category of happy to never, ever hear again. Um, amber for sublime mediocrity um, and green for can't wait to hear this this time of year so something that you really can't wait for it to be christmas to listen to um i thought i might give you mine first and Which then order are, we uh, going? are we red first or green first we'll go we'll go red first okay. shall we <laughs> all right so um or, or is it more comical to go green to red um, don't mind really don't mind probably more okay. comical the other way around yeah green to red then let's go uh, green to red so we'll start with my green and and then we'll go with your green we'll do we'll do one one for one okay so my green um has a tiny little story to it um my dad whenever we were decorating the christmas tree would put this song on um and he would dance around in the room with me so it brings back a lot of nostalgic memories um and it's also quite funny i don't know why it's funny but it always makes me laugh so this um song for me um at green is in dolce jubilo which obviously is not by mike oldfield originally but it's the mike oldfield version that i really love very nice. Okay, What's well, green? for my green, I'm going to track back to the unsung heroes a little bit here. Um, mm-hmm. Probably not uns- an unsung hero if you're involved in any sort of uh, choral music or anything like that. But if you are a, a general punter out in the street, he might be an un- unsung hero. David Wilcox. Heard of David Wilcox? Oh, I've heard of him, name? but I can't... He is the man who wrote all the traditional banging last verse descants to famous Christmas carols, which are sung traditionally. They always have fantastic reharmonizations. They always have a massive organ part, which I used to greatly enjoy, uh, absolutely bringing an organ to the the brink of destruction when I was an organist at this time of year by playing them uh, extremely loudly. So anything with a David Wilcox uh, descant has to be green rated by me.
let's just pause that at that point and let's just enjoy this reharmonization. Oh gosh. The man, the legend that is David Wilcox, the reharmonization. He's done another desk camp that is such a cheesy reharmonization that proper geeks actually have one of the chords printed on a t shirt <laughs> so that other geeks can see it and go, Yes, I know that chord. <laughs> I knew this task would be right up your street. This is your kind of homework, I think. Thank you for that. <laughs> Could have picked any of the other Love ones, it. you know, Once in Royal. He's done a good one for Once in Royal. Oh, come all ye faithful, which my students in digital, was it digital competence last week, actually insisted we broke off from doing digital competence in order to sing uh, the last verse of Oh, come all ye faithful with the desk count. So I was happy to oblige. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> You're a very kind uh, tutor there. Occasionally. Love it. Love it. Okay. Amber. Um, <laughs> Amber. Um, so this ties in with my penultimate entry about the Muppets Christmas Carol. I, I've put this as Amber because um, I know this won't be everybody's cup of tea. And actually a little bit of a fact for people who love the Muppets Christmas Carol, this song was cut Um from the original movie um i don't actually know why um <laughs> I, it was Amber. I, I mean I, yeah maybe um maybe i yeah i just i just don't know and i can't find out the reason why i'm sure there are a lot of myths myths flying around around it but it's when love is gone from the muppet christmas carol um performed by Belle, the character of Belle uh, in, in the film. I don't know who wrote it. I probably should have looked into this. The artist's a Meredith Braun. Um, uh, she's the person who sang it. And I think Michael Caine sings on it a little bit as well. Um, but yeah, it's, I, I think it's a lovely song. I don't know why they cut it. But if anybody can tell me, then uh, I'd be very grateful to know Where why. Is it Amber for you then, Emma? Because you sent me criteria for Amber and I think they were studied mediocrity. Well, sublime mediocrity, oh, sublime mediocrity was what I sorry. put. Yeah, yes. so I, I think it's one, for me, it's kind of one of those things that anybody else might think it's mediocre, but you know, you've kind of got a little secret, I don't know, soft spot for it. Oh, secret green for you then, is it? But, but amber for yeah. whoever cut it out of the movie. Yeah, I, oh, sorry, I should have made my success criteria clearer, shouldn't I? <laughs> yeah, okay. What's Samba for you then? <clears throat> well, I haven't got a music extract for this one. I, this is a tricky one because, yeah, you, you said. What was it again? Sublime mediocrity. Sublime mediocrity. Yeah, it's a bit of an oxymoron. It was a it was a difficult one. You set me some difficult homework there with your your the, the obscurity of your success criteria. I went for Oh Holy Night. I'll be honest. Ooh. I went for Oh Holy Night because actually it's good. It's absolutely fine. And in mm. fact, I once wrote the most indulgently cheesy arrangement of it for my school kids um it had uh, three soloists it had uh, at least one choir in it it had a massive wind and brass band it had me on the piano it had percussion practically hanging from the ceiling and it got a standing ovation because it was just a tsunami of cheese but i think therein lies its problem which is that there have been some slightly gloopy arrangements of it i think if you can strip it back to the bare minimum oh holy night would probably sneak a green for me but a few people myself included perhaps have uh, gone a little bit overboard and have just steered it 
off the rails into the land of the amber. Oh dear. Oh, I've got to say it's one of my favourites really, but it's not green. It's, it didn't reach great green status, but it's up there. Yeah. Go on then. Okay. Red. All right. So we're in red territory. We are in red territory. Um, the red lights are flashing. Happy to never hear again, ever. Um, maybe controversial because I think for some people, Nat King Cole is Christmas. However, he chose to write, and I don't know whether he wrote it, actually. I should probably have done my homework better on this. But um, The Little Boy That Santa Claus Forgot. Are you familiar I'm with not. that song? I must admit I'm not, no. Never, should I not ever, be? Never, <laughs> ever, never, ever play it to your children, okay. ever. It is the saddest Christmas song mm. you will ever hear. There are no redeeming features to the story in this song, to the lyrics. I mean, it's a beautiful, beautiful Christmas song um, and sung absolutely beautifully by Nat King Cole. However, I remember listening to it as a child and will forevermore be traumatised by the poor little boy that Santa Claus forgot. Oh That's a terrible. How I mean, could the he? title is terrible. I know it's, it's red banished yeah banished. that sounds awful yeah I'm down, I'm not not going anywhere near that oh well I just I failed you here because I just couldn't narrow it down to one <laughs> in fact I basically <laughs> wrote song titles until I got to the bottom of the page and ran out of paper wow <laughs> I went I mean, little drummer boy fairy tale of New York Santa baby baby it's cold outside mistletoe and wine wonderful Christmas time last Christmas and then I ran out of space <laughs> some of those were contenders for me i've got to admit they were particularly baby it's cold outside oh, because that is just i mean there's all yeah. kinds of wrong in yeah, that <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. <laughs> so i guess we we um we give you the task listeners out there of of playing the same game with your loved ones over the christmas period try rag rating christmas songs and uh, see if it causes any controversy in your household <laughs> you need a big Ah, oh, box for me. I'm afraid. I'm not a fan of a lot of that stuff. Ugh. No. Cheese no, are gone. No. Not nice. No. People probably be this, feel the same about Christmas movies. And if you watched more, you'd probably have a big bin, a oh, big red bin certainly. full of them. There's loads of them. Yeah. But there are a lot of good ones as well. So it's good to hear what you do like. And I, I got to admit, some of your, your green, I, I can, I can imagine preparing my uh, my vegan nut roast to that. <laughs> Oh yes. So there we have it, Tom. There we have it. I'm even more alone in the building now. I mean, at least my own lights have come back on again, but there's there's not much activity outside. Let me tell you. You haven't even got any Christmas lights to keep got you going. No I've Christmas got some lights. Plugging got... candles mm. in that room. No. I, oh, you have. Haven't you? I should have got those out. No, it's it's and it is cold outside. Let me tell you. We're also recording this in the middle of the coldest of cold snaps, and I've now got to walk home. So. Uh, oh. Yeah, I know. Oh, I'm so sorry. I feel for you. Maybe you need a hot toddy. I bet even the bar isn't open anymore. No, I bet. I bet I'll probably struggle to get out the door. To be honest, <laughs> I have to go and wake up security. <laughs> oh well, you did it for your art, Tom. I did my um, art. I did it for you, you Emma. I did it for you. <laughs> well, thank you to our listeners for yes. for sticking with us. If you stuck all the way through Ooh. to the end of that epic Christmas uh, episode, yes. Yes. Um, and we're back again in two weeks' time, aren't we're we? We're back in two weeks' time with some goodies for you. Back to normal service. Um, I hope you're following the advice that I gave to my students, which is to make sure you take a proper break over Christmas because you'll come back stronger from it. Indeed. 
Happy Christmas, Emma. And to you, Tom, and to all of you listening out there, and a happy new year. You've been listening to Emma and Tom Talk Teaching, a podcast about all things education, presented by Emma Thayer and Tom Breeze. We hope you enjoyed our Christmas special. Thanks from all of us at the podcast for listening. If you like what you hear, please do leave us a rating or review. Podcast artwork is by Beth Blandford and the music is by Cameron Stewart. Sorry, Cameron, again. We're on Twitter at TalkTeachingPod. If you want to come and say something festive, we'll be back in two weeks' time with our normal service. Until then, take care, Merry Christmas and enjoy teaching. Enjoy teaching.